the same cold. In Minnesota, the serious cold arrived like no cold I'd previously experienced. An in-your-face honesty to it, a clarity that always took me by surprise. On blizzard nights with wires down or in the dead battery dawn, the cold made good neighbors of us all, made us moral because we might need something moral in return. No hitchhiker left on the road, not even some frozen, strange-looking stranger turned away from our door. After a spell of it, I remember, zero would feel warm. People out for walks, jackets open, ice fishermen in the glory of their shacks moved to Nordic song. The cold took over our lives, lived in every conversation, as compelling as local dirt or local sport. If bitten by it, stranded somewhere, a person would want to lie right down in it and sleep. Come February, some of us needed to scream, hurt ourselves, divorce. Once, on Route 23, 30 below, my maverick seized up, and a man with a blanket and a candy bar, a man for all weather, stopped and drove me home. It was no big thing to him, the Savior. Just two men, he said, in the same cold. Meeting the Light Completely by Jane Hirschfield. Even the long beloved was once an unrecognized stranger. Just so the chipped lip of a blue glazed cup. Blown field of a yellow curtain might also, rising and falling, ruin your heart. A table painted with roses, an empty clothesline. Each time the found world surprises, that is its nature. And then what is said by all lovers, what fools we were not to have seen. And our next reading is several verses from the 59th surah, or chapter of the Quran, the sacred text of Islam. The text is about Muhammad, peace be upon him, and his followers fleeing the holy city of Mecca for Medina after they were forced to leave in the year 622 of the Common Era. This group of Meccan refugees were called Mujahirs, and some people in Medina welcomed them warmly and generously, housing them and giving them food, even though they had very little themselves. Some part is due to the indigent Mujahirs, those who were expelled from their homes and their property while seeking grace from Allah and his good pleasure and aiding Allah and his messenger. Such are indeed the sincere ones. But those who before them had homes in Medina and had adopted the faith show their affection to such as came to them for refuge and entertain no desire in their hearts for things given to the latter, but give them preference over themselves, 
even though poverty was their own lot. And those saved from the covetousness of their own souls, they are the ones that achieve prosperity. In 2001, I spent my college spring break in Syria and Lebanon. I know, not the typical spring break destination. I was studying at the American University in Cairo then and took the week to travel with my friend and fellow student Jill in other parts of the Middle East. We arrived in Aleppo, Syria on the eve of Eid al-Adha, the Muslim Feast of Sacrifice, a holiday that Muslims celebrated this past week. Eid al-Adha commemorates Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Ishmael at God's command and God's sparing of that sacrifice. One of the traditional ways to celebrate Eid is to slaughter a lamb, and it's custom to keep a third of the meat for one's family, give a third to extended family and friends, and a third to the poor. It is also the time of the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca that all Muslims make once in their life if they are physically and financially capable of doing so. And on that spring evening, I was horribly sick. I was trying to wander Aleppo with Jill, wanting to soak up as much of that beautiful city as I could, and realized I just couldn't. So I walked back to our hotel, and along the way, a man named Mahmoud fell into step with me and started speaking to me in perfect English. He said, tomorrow is Eid. You should celebrate with me and my family. I was hesitant. Who was this guy? But I was also traveling so I could learn about the culture and what better way is there to do that than to accept invitations like this. I agreed, though I told him I was Canadian, as if that hedged my bets in some way. (laughs) I didn't fully appreciate that invitation until the next morning. Jill and I were accustomed to American holidays, Even on the most important holidays here, commerce doesn't stop. You can still find breakfast on Christmas morning somewhere. It was really challenging to find food for purchase in Aleppo on Eid al-Adha. We wandered through streets full of closed shops getting increasingly hungry. We finally found food in the Armenian part of town the Armenian Christian shopkeepers kept their stores open for their community and for the occasional hapless traveler who didn't plan ahead. So that evening, Mahmoud picked us up at our hotel and drove us to his house. We stopped along the way so he could show us what he considered the most beautiful view of his beautiful city. When we arrived at the house, he led us into the living room and introduced us to his parents and his sister, Rima, who handed us each a large plate bursting with cookies and fruit. Mahmoud stayed with us for a few minutes, making introductions and translating. He told us he taught English as a second language, and he showed us the textbooks he uses in his classroom and asked us to teach, it, asked us to teach him the tunes of the songs that were in those books, because this was the days before YouTube, and he wanted to be able to sing the alphabet song with his students. So we sang, 
A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then his sister took us into the second living room, which is where the women and young children were celebrating that night. The women who were responsible for keeping the platters full in the men's, in the men's area would, would come in, would, put, would veil, and then leave. And then when they would come back, they would take off the veil to show elaborate hairstyles that they had put on just to impress the other women in the group. And there were probably a dozen of us in that room. The women and young children were warm and welcoming, giving us smiles and plates full of pita bread, rice, stuffed eggplant, and lamb and yogurt sauce. It was delicious. We didn't share a language. None of the women spoke English, and Jill and I had been studying Arabic for six whole weeks, so our skills were very limited, and we were studying Egyptian dialect, which is not what these Syrian women spoke. We quickly gave up on speaking to each other and turned to other ways of passing the time. Rima is a dancer, a belly dancer, and so she tried to teach us some dance moves, which, as we attempted, were not pretty or graceful and was a cause for everyone to laugh together. We showed them some American dancing, including the Macarena and the Hokey Pokey, (laughs) and we sang songs to one another. We connected across boundaries of language and culture. When we left that night, they gave us bags of snacks to take with us, but the most enduring remnant of the night was a vision of radical hospitality. The family's welcome of strangers who did not share their nationality, their language, their culture, or their religion. Since the Syrian civil war erupted four years ago, I've often thought of Mahmoud, Rima, and their family in their city. Aleppo, one of the most beautiful cities I have ever seen, has been largely destroyed in the fighting. Historic mosques and marketplaces are now rubble. Millions of refugees have fled the fighting. If Mahmoud and Rima are still alive, their lives are nothing like what I witnessed years ago. Perhaps they are internally displaced, living in another part of Syria. Perhaps they are among the four million Syrian refugees. Perhaps they are living in a refugee camp in Lebanon or Jordan. Perhaps they are among the thousands making the dangerous passage toward the European Union and making the perilous sea crossing in rickety boats or facing borders lined with razor wire. I see such a tragic irony in the Syrian refugee crisis. During my time in Syria, it was more than Rima and Mahmoud and their family that welcomed us warmly. It was everyone. The people were so friendly and so hospitable. And now they are dead or their lives are destroyed and they are having such trouble establishing themselves again somewhere else. They are facing refugee quotas, hostility, underfunded refugee programs, and governments unwilling to welcome them. Though the central story of Eid al-Adha is about God sparing Abraham's son, I want to tell another story this morning about the figure viewed as a spiritual ancestor by Muslims, Jews, and Christians, the three Abrahamic faiths. 
In the book of Genesis, in the Hebrew Bible, Abraham sees, sees strangers approaching his tent. He offers them water and bread for refreshment and water to clean themselves. When they accept that hospitality, he outdoes his promises, offering cakes, milk, curds, and the meat of a calf. The audience of the story knows that these were not ordinary visitors, but God and two angels in human form. After receiving Abraham's generous hospitality, they proclaim that his 90-year-old wife, Sarah, will have a son. This story of entertaining angels unaware is referenced in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament and is retold in Surah 15 of the Quran. And there are many more important stories of hospitality in these faiths. In the oral tradition of the passage from Surah 59 that I read earlier, the story is that the people in Medina who, who received the refugees fleeing Mecca kept their houses very dark during meals. They would put out food on the table for themselves and their guests, and then they would sit in the darkest corner and mime the gestures of eating because they didn't have enough food for everyone and they wanted their guests to eat their fill without any awareness that the hosts were going hungry. Part of why these stories of hospitality are so central to the Abrahamic faiths is that the early followers of these faiths were desert people. Many eked out lives on the edges of, and margins in a climate that was inhospitable. They knew that a lack of, in, of hospitality from other people was deadly. Should you find yourself a strange-looking stranger, hospitality is survival. The Bible is full of reminders that the people of Israel were once strangers, and so now they are obligated to care for the strangers among them. The poem we heard earlier by Stephen Dunn makes a case that hospitality is not only for desert people. Extreme cold binds us together similarly, makes us hospitable in the same way. The cold makes good neighbors of us all. What wisdom do these stories of hospitality in the Abrahamic traditions hold for us now? What might it look like if we welcomed the stranger, knowing we have been strangers ourselves and surely will be again? How might we remember that the long-beloved was once an unrecognized stranger? And what does it look like to mean come, come, whoever you are? The world witnessed an exuberant example of welcome a few weeks ago in a story from Iceland. Perhaps you heard about it. When the refugees asked where there'll be beds for me and all who seek, people in Iceland responded, yay, beds for all who come. Last month, the Icelandic government originally said that they would accept 50 Syrian refugees into their country. And for Iceland, that was a generous number, as they have resettled only 500 refugees in the past 50 years, about five a year. But many people in that country were outraged by this low number. Author and professor Brindis Bjorkvinsdottir wrote an open letter to the Icelandic welfare minister in which she said a friend of hers could provide housing for a Syrian family of five, and she would pay for their flights to Iceland 
and help them adjust to Icelandic society. She wrote, Refugees are our future spouses, best friends, our next soulmate, the drummer in our children's band, our next colleague, Miss Iceland 2022, the carpenter who finally fixes our bathroom, the chef in the cafeteria, the fireman, the hacker, and the television host, people who will never be able to say to, your life is worth less than mine. Her message spread. More than 13,000 Icelandic people have joined Björgvin's daughter in offering to donate their time, their money, and their houses to help resettle Syrian refugees. The Icelandic government is currently reassessing the number of refugees they can accept. And this story is not limited to a small country in the North Atlantic. Similar citizens effort, citizen efforts to welcome these displaced people and increase refugee resettlement numbers are ongoing throughout the world. I'm sure you've seen the pictures of people in Hungary and Serbia and elsewhere giving out meals and water to those who are transiting through their country. In Germany, soccer fans are holding up banners in the stadiums during matches. Not to cheer on their teams, these banners say, welcome refugees. The Obama administration has announced plans to increase the number of refuge, this con- refugees this country ex- will accept by over 30,000 in the next few years. And this change in policy is contingent on the federal government continuing to function, which sadly is not a certainty in our present political reality. That is the broadest level of hospitality, the actions of nations. How can we here at People's Church of Kalamazoo live out the words we sang earlier, welcoming wanderers, worshipers, and at least as I know the lyric, lovers of leaving? How might we literally or metaphorically mime eating in the dark so others can have their fill? What might it mean to be an even more hospitable people here at People's Church? And make no mistake, you are a hospitable people. As your new minister, I have felt warmly welcomed by you in recent months. Thank you for that. But I am not the only one that you welcome. You are a welcoming congregation, which means you've gone through a Unitarian Universalist Association program to help the congregation learn how to undo homophobia and transphobia in our hearts and minds, our congregations, and our communities. Many of us have rainbow flags on our name tags as a way to symbolize this welcome. Many of you help people of all ages and all identities find a spiritual home here at People's Church. And People's Church is part of Isaac, which is working to make Kalamazoo more hospitable for all who live here, more just for all who live here. I hope you will join me in attending the Isaac Issues Convention this Thursday to help us all select what issues that coalition will be focused on in the coming years. And there are ways we can grow into being even more hospitable. I'm not going to lay out a five-point plan today or any point plan. I'm just settling in here and don't yet know you all well enough to suggest 
the meaningful changes, though that time will come. For now, I'm just going to suggest a practice, a way of looking and thinking about who we are and how we welcome others. Those of us who are settled here, those of us who know that this is our spiritual community, a place of love and hope and joy, need to remember that coming to church for the first time is hard. It's hard. Not crossing the continents to make a new life hard, but it is hard. Do you remember your first time here? That first visit, even if we've been to other churches, even if we've been to other Unitarian Universalist churches before, is hard. On that first visit, walking in the door, we don't know where the bathrooms are or where the commons is or that the commons is the name for the room that worship happens in. We don't know when to stand or sit during the service and when we are a little slow to do either, we think everyone's looking at us. We don't know the words and the tunes and the rhythms that everyone else seems to know. We don't know if our questions will be welcome. We don't know if we will be welcome. Every person who visits this church or any church is taking a leap of faith, a risk, hoping that we might be the community they're searching for. They are hoping that we might be what they want us to be and that we might welcome them to our table and into our community. We are visited by these brave wanderers, these unrecognized strangers who might become our long beloveds and fellow congregants every week. How might we shoulder some of the burden of the risk they are taking? How might we make the hard thing they are doing as easy as possible? How might we diffuse the awkwardness that comes from not knowing how to do things yet or where things are? How might we pretend to eat in the dark so they could have their fill? I don't know the answers to those questions yet, but I know they are out there. I will be thinking about them in the coming months and I invite you to join me in reflecting on them, how we might welcome strangers, refugees, angels, wanderers, worshipers, and even the lovers of leaving. May we create a community of exuberant welcome here. And may our commitment to welcoming all people grow beyond these walls. May Kalamazoo, our state, our country, and our world become hospitable to all. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen. <laughs>